Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. You're listening to the New Books Network, and this is the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery Podcast. My name's Lucas Rickert, and welcome one and all. We're discussing psychedelics today, specifically mescaline. Let me introduce you to author Mike Jay. Mike is a public intellectual. He's the author of over a dozen books. He writes regularly for the London Review of Books, the Wall Street Journal, and the Literary Review. In addition to this, he works as a curator and exhibit designer for the Wellcome Trust in London. His most recent book is Mescaline, a global history of the first psychedelic, published by Yale University Press. Mike, it's wonderful to have you here, and I'm thrilled to talk about your book today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Luke. Okay, so let's start off with you. Can you just give us a little sense of your background and how you got onto the topic of mescaline? Yeah, uh, my background, I guess, I'm not an academic. Uh, I did a degree in philosophy at Cambridge University, after which I decided I was kind of done with reading books. And I spent (laughs) the next uh, 10 years working in film and TV and journalism. And um, I've been pretty much a freelance writer ever since. Uh, I started writing about drugs quite early on, I guess 20 years ago in the sort of mid 90s, when nobody else was writing about it much. And it became a kind of a specialism. Um, At that time, people talked about drugs as if they had been invented by hippies in the 1960s. So uh, (laughs) I kind of, one of my sort of beats was to kind of try and show how, you know, our, um, you know, illicit drugs of today all have, you know, much longer histories than that, you know, and often very diverse and interesting histories. So that's been, um, you know, a subject area that I've, I've written a lot about ever since. And mescaline, in spe- uh, more specifically, what is it that's driven you towards uh, this uh, this drug? Uh, I've nibbled away at uh, bits of mescaline's history in the past. Uh, I um, it's a it's a big subject uh, to take on and a difficult one. But there were a couple of things that really appealed to me. Uh, one is that. Um, I guess probably the story that most people know about mescaline is uh, that uh, Aldous Huxley took it in 1953 and he wrote his account of it in The Doors of Perception, after which he and the psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond, who'd given him the mescaline, coined the term psychedelic. So that's officially the beginning of the psychedelic era and psychedelics, are, we think of the story starting there in the sort of 50s and becoming a mass cultural phenomenon in the 60s. But what's interesting about uh, mescaline is that um, that's more or less the end of mescaline's story. Mescaline kind of goes way back through different disciplines all the way through, you know, in the the 20th century. And before that, it has a long uh, and uh, varied indigenous history. So it's a chance to write about psychedelics, what they are, what they do, how they're used in different cultures through history. Um, But outside this kind of 
you know, contemporary sort of um, idea of what psychedelics are. So it's a way of, you know, taking something that we think we know and, uh, you know, presenting it in unfamiliar contexts and making us think about it differently. Cool. Well, let's pick up on that thread a little bit. Um, you mentioned that it's uh, been deeply ingrained in other cultures. And so can you tell listeners a little bit about its, its history uh, beyond um, Western medical science? Yeah. Um, mescaline occurs uh, in nature in um, cacti, in two uh, particular families of cacti. Uh, very curious that it should be two very distantly related fam families of cacti. There's the mm. uh, um, San Pedro cactus, which is a tall, spiny, columnar, kind of classic cartoon cactus that grows all over the Andes, uh, which contains about 1% of mescaline. And then there's the peyote cactus, probably more familiar which grows in Mexico and a little bit of what's now Texas, which is a small, stubby, little um, spineless cactus, uh, which has a slightly higher concentration of mescaline. So there are two traditions of uh, mescaline-containing cactus use, uh, both of which are um, we have evidence for going back um, three, you know, maybe four or five thousand years into prehistory. Uh, the San Pedro, uh, for example, we see that um, carved on the walls of 3,000 year old uh, Peruvian temple up in the high Andes. Um, wow. And the um, but the uh, uh, but the, the first sort of Western engagement with uh, mescaline containing cacti is with uh, peyote, which the Spanish encountered encountered during the conquest of Mexico in the 16th century. So uh, that we have a much longer, different kind of written history of. Yeah, indeed. I remember reading some of Carlo Castaneda's work in, in undergraduate. Um, that's, mm -hmm. um, I guess the story of psychedelics more generally, I mean, whether or not it's mescaline or not, uh, just to pick up on what you're talking about with other cultures, um, has been told, unfortunately, I suppose, through the lens of uh, white middle class men and Western uh, Western based science. So I guess, can you expand or tell us a little bit more about how you know, other cultures have used mescaline? Uh, uh, and then I suppose a little bit about the role of women as well in, in the history of mescaline medicine. Sure. I mean, this is um, this is another thing that attracted me to the idea of writing a book about mescaline is that uh, mescaline kind of has two histories. You know, it was uh, exactly 100 years ago in uh, 1919. It was first synthesized in the laboratory. So for 100 years, it's existed in uh, modern Western culture and scientific and other contexts. Um, and then it also has this non-Western, uh, indigenous history that goes back thousands of years. And um, it's interesting to write these two histories in parallel because the source material for them is so different. Uh, from the very beginning, which is uh, the 1890s, when you get the first Western investigators, scientists and doctors uh, taking uh, peyote and writing about it, you get this literature that is um, very medico-scientific, um, at that point exclusively male, 
and uh, which focuses very specifically on describing the effects of the, uh, you know, the pre presumed drug in this cactus, you know, before it's, it, it's known exactly what it is. And um, this is a literature that we know quite well, and it's still, you know, this is still the way that, you know, most people in our culture uh, write about drugs. If you go to something like the Erowid website where people leave their reports, this is the kind of literature where people start, you know, 8.22 p.m. consumed, uh, you know, four uh, buttons of peyote cactus, 9.15 p.m. start to notice the first sort of uh, violet and green shimmerings around my, uh, pat you know, on my, my notepad and, uh, and, and so on. It's a kind of, it's a curious um, style because on the one hand, um, it's very personal. On the other hand, it's kind of rather distanced and objective and scientific. Uh, so that's pretty much, uh, you know, we've got a very, very detailed uh, literature of uh, Western engagements with masculine and the vast majority of them have this style. So they have a central first person character in the middle narrating. Mm. And they're often very much focused on um, the sort of visual effects people get, you know, particularly from the very beginning with the masculine literature, people are trying to describe these kaleidoscopic patterns and bright colours that they're seeing on their, you know, on, on, on their closed eyelids. Um, what's interesting when you and try and look back at uh, indigenous histories is that, um, you know, you have very different type of source material. Uh, people very, very rarely give a first-person account of what's going on because, um, you know, uh, this is, um, it's usually some kind of communal or collective experience. And there's quite a presumption against um, uh, sharing your sort of personal and private visions uh, in uh, cultures like sort of the uh, which all culture in Mexico when uh, anthropologists ask people ask people what do you see what are your visions people say well you know why would I want to share that That's, that was something private that was given to me what would be my motive for trying to impose that on other people uh, and in fact there's quite often a presumption against the visions being interesting there's an idea that if you're focused on the visions you're being distracted you're kind of missing the point if um, if there's a sort of collective ritual going on and all you're doing is sitting there with your eyes closed you know looking at these patterns on your eyelids then you know you need to wake up and engage so uh it's fascinating to tell these two stories in parallel and to see the different you know the specific assumptions that underlie our western psychedelic paradigm so did this cause any problems with you putting the book together and trying to make these two overlapping intersecting narratives work or or did it, it come together nicely I really enjoyed the two different forms of engagement. So my writing about the indigenous traditions is much more, um, uh, you know, the, the masculine containing cacti uh, are much more embedded in the culture and in the stories of the people. So you're writing something that is more like ethnography. You're telling the story of a whole people and you're showing how, for example, the um, uh, peyote, uh, ritual in the among among the plains indians you know you're seeing who were the you know there, there are characters there you know community leaders um people who are advocates for this tradition and who spread it um but by and large it's the story of the people and their situation and then when you're looking at uh um, the Western masculine, you're really looking at individual people's stories uh and the, the interest of that i think um 
I mean, it can often be when you're reading descriptions of people's drug experiences that you're just, um, it's like reading long descriptions of people's dreams. It's kind of boring. Uh, <laughs> but if you have a sense of who the person is and why they're doing this and what it, what they're looking for and what it means to them, then I think it becomes quite involving. So it was very nice to be able to transition between uh, these collective cultural stories on the one hand and these individual personal stories on the other. Yeah, one of the most fascinating elements of the book, uh, at least as, as I read it, was uh, how you highlighted certain cultural references. Um, sometimes they were pop culture, sometimes not. And I thought that many of them sort of just jumped off the page at me. And um, so basically the book's far from a story about medical science and, and regulation exclusively. Other authors are, are doing that. But uh, I guess my question is, can you say uh, a little bit about some of your favorite anecdotes, the cultural references uh, or the cultural stories that, that really shone for you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one strand in the book is um, Western science, scientific engagement with masculine. And there's a particular, um, I think it gives us a particularly interesting uh, angle on the history of regulation, particularly looking at the, you know, uh, the Plains Indian peyote religion and the Native American church as it became. But beyond that, there's an awful lot that spreads beyond that because there's, um, there's a lot of um, spiritual engagement, of course, uh, and some of this is very surprising. You know, very early on during the 1900s and 1910s, I was um, astonished to discover, for example, that... Uh, uh, the um, reformed uh, Mormon church uh, led by Frederick Smith, who was the grandson of Joseph Smith, the uh, founder of the, uh, of, of the Mormon church, that um, he was um, a kind of, I think like a lot of people at the beginning of the 20th century, he was kind of progressive minded and um, he felt that uh, Western culture was becoming mechanized and dull and he believed that we really needed some kind of ecstatic um, religious experience in our lives. And um, the Mormons, of course, being where they were, reached out to uh, a lot of Native American tribes. Uh, you know, they, that was an important part of their missionary work. And Frederick Smith attended peyote ceremonies and, um, you know, thought that this was, you know, an experience that um, connected him, you know, not just to uh, centuries of spiritual tradition across the world, but uh, particularly to, um, you know, his, his, his vision of Christ, you know, the perfected man. And um, uh, so it was fascinating to discover that, um, you know, uh, that, that people, people like that were interested in peyote. And around the same time, then you had to, uh, other people engaging with it um, very differently. For example, Alistair Crowley, the famous um, uh, occultist and magician at that time, was experimenting with it. And uh, I was also interested to see how it kind of gives us very interesting um, stories of scientific engagement. There's uh, persistently, um, when people, whether they're psychologists or um, neuroscientists or um, psychiatrists um, uh, try and investigate it. They find that it kind of spills over from their discipline. Uh, so there are great examples of um, uh, mind scientists deciding to collaborate with um, artists or with uh, philosophers. So you have uh, psychiatrists giving mescaline to people like um, Walter Benjamin or Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, there was a wonderful uh, experiment that took place in London in the 1930s where two 
psychiatrists who were investigating hallucinations uh, decided to give uh, mescaline to a bunch of surrealist artists because they thought, well, you know, um, you know, these people are going to be able to paint or draw their hallucinations. These are people who are used to, uh, um, you know, externalizing the context of the subconscious mind. So an awful lot of uh, what starts off as scientific engagement with mescaline goes off in strange and unpredictable directions. Oh, I love it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have to ask, too, about maybe some of the, the art and involved with the, the physical book itself. Um, mm -hmm. The design of your book uh, is it, very appealing. Can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, that process? Yeah, that was, I mean, that was a delightful surprise for me. I think it's a great design. I mean, I gave a, a, a brief for the cover. Uh, I su I'd suggested it. It should be psychedelic, but not kind of psychedelic in that kind of op art 1960s way that we conventionally think of it. This is something kind of darker in tone, you know, colours emerging out of darkness. You know, there's a great uh, uh, motif that runs through the investigation of mescaline, which is about people closing their eyes in a darkened room and seeing these colours start to appear. So my uh, visual references for this were um, uh, kind of... Uh, abstract animators of the 30s, people like uh, Oscar Fischinger, I don't know if you remember, um, Fantasia, the Disney movie, opens with course, this beautiful yeah. sequence, the sort of synesthesia of, uh, you know, where the, as the orchestra tunes up and these sort of images appear. So that was kind of what I had in mind. And um, I just gave that brief to uh, uh, my editor, who um, then turned out something absolutely perfect. Um, I, I think um, it's, it's also... You want something that kind of, in a way, has a look of kind of tribal art or Mexican art, like Wichol art, but also has that um, feeling of uh, 20th century science to it as well. And I think it, it bridges those two just beautifully. I'll just say very quickly that I had a few uh, nightmares about Fantasia and uh, walking brooms when I was a kid. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> But yeah, I just have to say to listeners too that the the cover just pops. It's it's very vibrant, and flipping through the book is is a visual experience as well. So, um, so look, it's it's obvious that you're you're contributing, I think, to important contemporary discussions right now as well in in medical science. I mean, I'm I'm in a school of pharmacy. And um, this is something that a lot of my colleagues and I are talking about is the use of psychedelics in uh, as viable therapeutics uh, nowadays. And uh, so who is it uh, that needs to read this book? I mean, who, who I mean, obviously, you've written the book um, for many audiences and, and, I, and um, it's very accessible and extremely informative, informative. But who, if you had to pick, needs to read the book the most? Yeah, I mean, this was another appealing thing about mescaline as a subject is that mescaline is nowhere to be seen in the psychedelic renaissance. You know, it's it's the drug for which the term psychedelic was coined. But everybody is working with ketamine or psilocybin, um, you know, or, um, you know, LSD or MDMA. Uh, so I don't have to engage with that directly. Um, I guess what I'm trying to do is to um, give a sense of the hinterland behind this and of the long history of people to, trying to um, co-opt mescaline for uh, medicine and particularly for psychotherapy uh, and 
the um, you know, which is which, which is a, you know, it's a history that kind of goes way back to the beginning of the 20th century. I think much earlier than people realise. Um, uh, and it's a history that's fascinating, but also problematic. I mean, in terms of pharmacy, I think uh, you know you can see from the very beginning how hard mescaline was to contain because most drugs have predictable effects. Yes. You know, even psychoactive drugs. You know, Valium doesn't make kind of some people sort of um, sleepy and other people overexcited. You know, it does what it does. Yeah. But mescaline from the very beginning, um, there was uh, it had an enormous number of different effects on different subjects. Um, it was a very intense experience uh, for people who were enjoying that experience. It was intensely enjoyable for people who were not. It was um, terrifying and, and, and nightmarish. Uh, so I think um, it, before we kind of um, start to treat psychedelics just like um an, an, another kind of uh, item in the psychopharmacy uh i think it's interesting to look at the wider story of its use how tantalizing and fascinating it's been but also how problematic and how many of its most effective uses um have been outside the clinical paradigm what i've found with uh talking with people uh who are maybe uninitiated in the history of psychedelics generally sort of lump them all together and uh i i suppose what you've done is really nuanced the story of of mescaline and and shown that it, it's it's not at all the same as lsd is that fair to say I, it's surprising how when you look at that time in the 1950s when lsd is coming in um and replacing mescaline and looking at the people who are comparing it. Um, most people, you know, people like Aldous Huxley, who began with mescaline then moved on to LSD and kind of went, oh, yeah, this does pretty much the same thing. Hmm. Uh, and people like, um, you know, Albert Hoffman, the discoverer of LSD. Um, uh, I guess when those are the only two substances that do anything like this, you know, then their commonalities are, um, are you know, a much more apparent um but of course the huge difference is in is in dosage uh right. mescaline is something that you know is active at doses of um you know several hundred milligrams uh uh lsd it's micrograms so i think that made it more appealing at that point to uh, neuroscientists because it was obvious that this must be acting on some very specific if unknown trigger mechanism so can we just pivot a little bit away from the book to uh, Mike J's advice for younger uh, writers and, and scholars? Can I can I uh, ask a question, uh, if I may, about uh, as the author of over a dozen books, uh, extremely prolific, what kind of advice you'd give to to younger authors? Yeah, I think um, I have found. Um, the history of drugs to be a very valuable subject to explore. It's not the only thing I've written about, uh, but I've kind of um, being a being freelance, you know, um, people kind of uh, commissions come back at me, you know, and something that's, a, you know, drugs are a perennially sexy and popular subject. So uh, the reason I've ended up writing about them a lot is because people, uh, you know, have become the go to guy for this kind of thing. And um, what I find great about it is that um, it's uh, it's it's treated as a specialism, as if I'm a specialist in this. But of course, I'm not. I'm I'm not an academic. I'm really a generalist. And um, what I like about it, and what I find so rewarding about it, is it's a subject that um, 
you know, enables you to cherry pick a lot of interesting material from different territories. So, uh, you know, there's ethnography and anthropology in here. There's the history of science. You know, there's the history of art and literature. There's neuroscience, of course. And um, I think that's a good way, you know, particularly if you're starting out to find an original subject and an original voice is to yoke together a couple of disciplines that haven't been explored together. Um, and I think we're now reaching the point where, in terms of writing about um, psychedelics and drugs, there's kind of like a little, um, you know, there's quite a culture around that, um, you know, but I think I, I find that um, that culture kind of, um, it's a little bit of an echo chamber and it's slightly insular because people treat um, drugs or psychedelics as if they're a subject in their own right. So I would say reach out from that and, you know, do a deep dive into one or another kind of specialism or aspect of history that you can attach this to and uh, bring new life to it and get uh, you know new facets of it to catch the light. So what direction are you heading next? And I guess what I'm asking is like what kind of project are you turning to in the the, the weeks and months ahead? That's um, a very good question. Uh, <laughs> I find um, as a uh, um, as as a writer at the level that I'm writing, it takes uh, it takes a while to tee up a new book. You know, the uh, um, uh, I have a lot of um, shorter commissions, which are which are great. You know, essays and reviews. Um, this this kind of writing is fascinating. So uh, um, I've just you, you might see in the Wall Street Journal in the next uh, couple of weeks uh, a piece I've written about a new book about the history of lithium, which is fascinating. I mean, mm. that's another. Um, uh, that's another drug that kind of spills out of the boundaries of medicine. Uh, I did not know, for example, I mean, we all know that Coca-Cola used to have cocaine in it, but uh, I did not know, for example, that 7-Up used to have lithium in it, that it was a kind of, uh, um, <laughs> that there were these kind of um, calming sedative, you know, tonics. And there's a, you know, uh, so what I tend to find is that, um, you know, I get, Given these commissions, there are always like little stories that I'm researching myself and developing, and uh, I proceed like that for a while, and then at some point, you know, they coalesce into a new subject. But uh, I'm not in any hurry to kind of uh, rush into a new um, project straight away. It's a kind of nice point at the moment where I can uh, continue to spin out elements of aspects of this book and um, you know open up to new material. That's a great spot to be in, and. Um... Your most recent book, Mescaline, A Global History of the First Psychedelic, was also a great read. Um, and thanks so much for uh, spending this time with me today. Oh, it's a great pleasure, Luke. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. You too.